This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. My name is Fritz Leiber. The big interest in my life is fantasy, and especially science fantasy or science fiction. And it's a, it's a growing taste, yet it's still a special taste, and I think, therefore, it needs some support. That's certainly why I support listener-sponsored science fiction on KPFA. The works of Fritz Leiber, who died at the age of 81 back in 1992, seem to have fallen into some kind of unwarranted obscurity in recent years. An author of science fiction, horror, and fantasy stories, during his lifetime he was considered a master of genre fiction. It was Fritz Leiber, according to Wikipedia, who coined the term sword and sorcery to refer to fantasy stories set in medieval times involving knights and squires and castles and dragons and all kinds of magic. His own sword and sorcery duo, Fafford and the Grey Mauser, whose stories were collected in several volumes, along with characters such as Conan the Barbarian by his contemporary Robert E. Howard, are considered among the most notable in the genre. A stylist at a time when there were few stylists in science fiction and fantasy, his books and stories often had social themes, including Gather Darkness, set in a future religious dystopia, The Wanderer, which explores what happens when a rogue planet comes near Earth, and Our Lady of Darkness, which sets up a Lovecraftian world inside modern-day San Francisco. Back in the early days of Probabilities, my two co-hosts, Lawrence Davidson and Richard Lupoff, and I socialized with Fritz Leiber and his lady friend Margot. There were three recordings to emerge from that time, which was 1977 into 1978. One of them, focusing on Fafford and the Grey Mauser, exists today only on a reel-to-reel tape, and it's still to be digitized. Another was recorded in Liber's apartment on Geary Street in San Francisco's Tenderloin when Liber was more expansive than usual. In that recording, though, only Fritz's voice is intelligible. The third was an interview with Richard A. Lupoff. It was recorded in KPFA studios, and it was most likely done during the KPFA Marathon Science Fiction Day in September 1977, which was the same day that Philip K. Dick showed up unexpectedly to be part of the broadcast. This podcast features that third recording with a couple of inserts from the Geary Street session, which duplicate and expand on some of the material in Dick Lupoff's interview. Dick's interview has not been heard since its initial airing in 1977, and the Geary Street inserts have never been heard until now. The recordings were digitized, remastered, and edited in August 2023. You worked with or for most of the famous editors in the pulp era and the post-pulp era. I just want to probe a little bit and find out as much as I can about some of these people who, who were famous names and more legends than real people when, when I first came into the field. And the first one that strikes me is 
is Farnsworth Wright, the famous classic editor of Weird Tales. I never uh, visited the Weird Tales office, although I lived in Chicago, which was the home of Weird Tales during the 1930s at any rate. Somewhere in the mid-1940s it moved to New York. I was once introduced to Farnsworth Wright at a chess match of all things. The University of Chicago team was playing the Marshall Field Gardens Apartments team and I was on the first team and Farnsworth Wright was on the uh, Marshall Fields Gardens Apartments team. But we didn't play chess with each other. We were on different boards. But I did meet him at that time. I remember him as a small, rather small gray man with a, with a tremor. I didn't know at the time it was Parkinson's disease. And the, the one acceptance I have from Farnsworth Wright the one acceptance letter for the story, The Automatic Pistol, which was the first story I sold to Weird Tales. Why, his signature has that fine tremor in it. But I never knew the man, and uh, I just have a few, besides that, a few rejection letters from him. Did you ever have any contact with Joe Henneberger, the publisher? No. No, I didn't. Uh, so your dealings with Weird Tales were mainly with Dorothy McElwraith? Yes, and again, I didn't meet the lady. I, You know, I was generally at a distance from New York. Yes. I was either out in Chicago or Los Angeles when I sold the, my few stories yes. to Weird Tales. Now, there's a, a story, maybe apocryphal, maybe true. You, you're the man to say that Fofford and the Grey Mouser were intended for weird tales and wound up in unknown because of some problem. Well, that's true. Uh, Farnsworth Wright rejected the story Adept Gambit, which was the first Fafford Mauser story I completed, a 25,000-word novelette or novella, and he rejected it on the grounds that it was stylistically too experimental for such a long story. It was only submitted to him once. You know, he had a tendency, he's said to have had a tendency to reject stories, the first, some stories, the first time, and then buy them on the second or third yes. submission. I heard that. And uh, I never. I never gave him a ch second chance on Adept's Gambit, merely because I was, you know, I didn't know that he had that quirk. And then later on, while I was selling the stories to a few of the stories to Unknown, why, I also tried to sell Fafford Mauser stories to Weird Tales, after, that is, after Unknown, uh, failed and went out of business, why I submitted several Fafford Mauser stories to Weird Tales, but under Dorothy McIlwraith, they, they published very little sword and sorcery. 
they they almost seem to have a prejudice against the that particular sort of fiction. Yes. So none of those stories ever appeared in Weird Tales. No. no. They popped up again um, in Lester Del Rey's magazine, did they not? There was one in I think it was Other Worlds. Bill Hamling's when Bill Hamling was the editor and Bia Mahaffey was his assistant. I sold the Seven Black Priests. Excuse me, was, was that Hamling or Palmer? They were all jumbled in together. Well, I think at the time, at any rate, Hamling was what? the editor. And then I sold Dark Vengeance or Claws from the Night to a magazine, a short-lived magazine called, I believe, Suspense. I forget the editor of it. And then it, it wasn't until... Uh, Seal Goldsmith became the editor of Fantastic that I began to be successful in in selling Fafford Mauser stories yes. again. She was very enthusiastic about the characters and and I I must have sold about six of the stories to the to Fantastic during her editorship. Yeah. I, I always thought that Seal Goldsmith was a very fine editor and I was very sorry when she left. I don't know what what she's doing now, somewhere out there in the big world. She became the Seal Lally. It was when the the magazines were sold to uh, Ultimate Publishing yes. Company and to Sal Cohen that uh, we lost Seal as an editor. Yes. A number of writers, I think, yes. David Bunch and Zelazny, I believe. Yes, and, and, uh, she brought in Tom Dish, and she brought uh -huh. the first stories of Ursula Le Guin, I believe, before Le Guin started writing those little ace doubles. Uh -huh. uh, she was a very charming and perceptive woman. In those early days, there were so few magazines, really, you know, well, especially before World War II, so that a lot of the writers had read everything that had been published in the magazines. And, you know, they, and so there was a lot of this sort of business of, here's a plot. Oh, no, you can't do that. So-and-so did it, you know. And a great deal of feeling that, you know, that you knew all the stories, so you really had to get something original, different from all three or four hundred of them that had been published in the magazines so far. It was a revelation that Cincinnati convention and finding so many people who were whose stories I'd read and so on. Lester Delray, I remember, and first Fred Pohl. Fred Pohl was my agent at that time. He got into the agenting business. I, well, I guess that with that character Dirk Wiley, which who had some sort of long German name. <laughs> Doc Weiler, yeah, Doc Weiler, Dirk Wiley. <laughs> I always had trouble selling the weird tales. I never really, I sold them one story only when Farnsworth Wright was editor. And then, so most of the time I was, uh, Dorothy McIlwraith was the editor. See, it was sold around the end of the war. Wright was out and he died shortly afterwards. It was bought by a small chain that also had short story magazine, which for which they had this Dorothy McIlwraith editing it. And it was a great name for the Ilwraith and so on. But she was she was a sort of 
According, I never met her, but according to Henry Cutner, she was a sort of Helen Hokuson club woman type, you know, <laughs> the cartoons. And, and uh, she and her assistants, they, they, they were, they, they had a vague idea about wanting the traditional sort of ghost story, you know, and they were, so they, and they, they were down on, uh, on sword and sorcery and, and stories had to have very definite plots, most of them lay. And so I, I had trouble selling to them. And I looked at it in a hu humorous and cold-blooded way. I had a, an older friend who had sold his first Western story just by trying to put in it everything that a Western story, every incident, you know, surefire incident from Western stories he'd read, you know, and as a joke, you know, and of course they loved it. I mean, they, they bought it, and so I said to myself, "Well, what, what about weird tales?" And I sort of worked out that it had to have wealth in it. There had to be descriptions of wealthy living, and it had to have sex, and it had to have some sort of violence, and it had to have a giant, a mad scientist, and a giant spider some equivalent of that and especially they liked wealth if it was sort of a decayed wealthy southern family i mean you know a southern plantation and god help me i got racial it had to it had to have a comedy negro in it you know who sort of was scared of ghostesses so i wrote a story called spider mansion with all those things in it and of course they bought it you know it was just <laughs> They would always, uh, even Farnsworth Wright, I'm sure, would have bought it. I mean, in that case, because it was a, a real cliche start. And then I remember I got mad at a, well, not not mad, but sort of inwardly mad at a at a friend of mine who was very much the intellectual, literary type. His his writing career actually consisted of he sold one story to New Yorker. And that, that was all he ever did. But he did do that, you know. <laughs> and he, he enthused over this story, you know, Spider-Mansion. And I, I got the feeling, my idea was, yeah, he thinks, it's, he thinks that at last I'm writing the sort of crap that should be in those magazines, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Frankly sensational rather than trying to make some obscure point. <laughs> I never did sell a great deal to, to weird tales, so I, though I kept trying. And, and two of the stories, two of those stories for weird tales, since they were a medical topic, you probably ought to add that to, to weird tales, that they always went for the curiosities and oddities of medicine. The move of uh, Fofford and the Grey Mouser, once, once uh, Farnsworth Wright didn't care for them, uh, over to Unknown brings John Campbell on stage. And anything you can tell us about him? Again, my contacts were by mail, but here they were much more uh, significant. He published my first two novels, Conjure Wife and Gather Darkness in Unknown and astounding stories respectively and in both cases he he helped me in the writing i mean his criticism 
helped me. I, I completed a, about three or four chapters, the first chapters of, the, of both of those novels, and then sent them to him. And he gave me a lot of detailed criticism on them that I'm sure enabled me to improve the novels. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, picayune criticism or suggestions of, wouldn't this be a good idea if you did such and such? It was more suggestions about the general treatment. In Conjure Wife, he kept me from overcomplicating it by by introducing too many scenes in other locales. I was going to have a, a section that took place in Mammoth Cave, I believe. And this, this seemed to be, I think it would have been getting rather far afield from my college town. And in Gather Darkness, I began to treat the villains rather satirically, making fun of them, you know. And he pointed out that it might be better to take them more seriously. Yes. He also pointed out that uh, something that I think is, of course, an obvious but very good piece of advice, and that is that every man, even the most villainous uh, and personally, supposedly the most evil, wicked person, thinks he is doing everything for the best in yes. some you know, he's doing what must be done, either from the point of view of God or his his own feelings. He is taking the only course that uh, and the best course available at all times. And by and large, that is true, as we know. I'd say he had a lot of influence on on me in that respect. I remember in one of the Fafford Mauser stories, he got in the thieves' house. He got me to uh, arrange it in a simpler and less less involuted, complicated style, just by straightening out the time sequence in several places. Later on, he gave me the he gave me the general idea for the the novelette. The Lion and the Lamb, which was just imagining that, you know, two branches of a culture and one goes in the artistic direction and the other in the science direction. That notion was enough. He did supply ideas. He wanted me to, at one time, he, he suggested the, the very fruitful theme of aging, the relativistic time effect the fact that space travelers going close to the speed of light would be younger after their after the completion of their voyages than the uh, people who stayed at home on the planets and so you would have some dramatic effects and i wasn't able to make anything of that and a little, a year or so later, why L. Ron Hubbard had a series of stories that that dealt with that very thing. Yes. And then, of course, since then, we've had things like Heinlein's Time for the Stars and, and uh, Haldeman's The Forever War yes. that have yes. dealt very effectively with this. I first sold to three or four stories over the course of 
as many years to Unknown, that second magazine that Campbell, John W. Campbell, edited. And then, and a couple of stories, finally, to Weird Tales. And then when Campbell's realized, I think, that Unknown was going to fold, he asked me, among other people, I suppose, to why not try writing science fiction stories also? And that was on that basis I wrote uh, Gather Darkness, which was again a sort of a sort of witchcraft story super with superimposed on science fiction, you know, or given a science fiction rationalization. So I got into the field very uh, very gradually and sort of I, I never turned out a tremendous amount of copy. I thought I was doing awfully amazingly well by writing Conjure Wife and Gather Darkness in one year and a few short stories besides. But I again I heard afterwards from uh, from Henry Cutner that Campbell was very uns unsure about me because I was so slow. Didn't write fast enough, damn it, you know. Well, he had, he, he had his problems, and uh, he'd lost Heinlein and Asimov and DeCamp to the, to the war effort. I mean, they were at the Brooklyn Navy Yard doing some sort of research. Yeah, and Hubbard, too. And Campbell, when he, when he had a writer going well, why, he tried to, you know, get as much as possible out of them at that time, so that for a while, just before the war, or before we got into it, why, Heinlein was turning out half the contents of astounding stories under various names, Anson McDonald especially, as well as Heinlein. And then when they went, why, he, he, uh, Henry Cutner largely replaced them, I'd say, and was furnishing an awful lot of material for the, for the magazine. And so, as I say, he, he thought I was pretty slow. And actually, that was about the biggest writing year I ever had. <laughs> Two novels, wow. Most people would be happy about that. Uh, what, what year was that? Uh, let's see, that was in the middle of the war, see, that was, that was, uh, Pearl Harbor was in 42, I think, or 41. 41, yeah, so it was 1942, sometimes they, you know, and mm -hmm. just, just coinciding with the, with our getting into the war, those are very, very tense times, you know, when you, and amazingly enough, you generally are more creative than I think it's, it's, basically stimulating all that stuff. From Campbell, this, this does bring us on into the 50s, and, and I, I want you to talk, if you're willing, about a couple of more editors. In 1949, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction started with Tony Boucher and J. Francis McComas as the editors. And then in 50, Horace Gold started Galaxy. It seems to me that those were very important events and uh, had vast impact. You worked for both of those magazines. I I sold stories to both those magazines and uh, had stories accepted by both those editors. Tony Boucher had perhaps the most, was the most influential. His influence was in the direction of 
literary polish, I would say. He 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 wanted his stories to be well written, and he improved the language of science fiction, the, the diction and grammar and so on improved markedly under his editorship, and also the sophistication of the stories. He disliked, you know, slam-bang adventure in general, and uh, and a lot of blood and violence, and he, by and large, he passed up sword and sorcery of the Hackham variety, you know, the the head chopping variety and he certainly he helped me shape up stories like uh, rump titty titty tum tati and a desk full of girls i i did rewrite stories for him and especially sharpened up the endings in both those stories i can so he he certainly was a was a force for good as far as my writing was concerned. Was that through personal contact or by mail? Since he went from the West mail. Coast. Yeah, that was by mail, and so was my contact with Horace Gold. I, though I did, I did meet the man and visited him in his apartment, to which he was confined by his agoraphobia. You know, he pretty much edited Galaxy from one apartment room, yes. and when his agoraphobia got bad, it was from the bedroom of that one <laughs> apartment, and there were several New York writers, the younger writers, who, who went through a lot of tutelage from that, yes. from that center. And certainly, I mean, I, Galaxy encouraged all of us to write in a more modern manner, to tackle taboo themes, and, you know, it, it, the, the stories that so Galaxy was the place where we first dared to be socially conscious, you might say, and have stories that, that explored society and its, its prejudices and biases more closely than we'd ever been inclined, most of us had ever been inclined to before. When you started getting into books for the first time, uh, this this was in an era when very little labeled science fiction could get into books, or fantasy for that matter. If you snuck it in uh, as uh, a social satire, you, you could publish a, a Brave New World or a 1984, but anything that uh, that had the, uh, the mark of Cain uh, by having appeared or uh, in Astounding or any 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 other labeled category was uh, almost death uh, on getting into books and then along came two sword adventure and that that was from uh, from Marty Greenberg was it not yes from that Dome was press was that the first or was the, your arkham book the first no my arkham book was the first and i think there's the tip off i mean the generally speaking the first appearances of uh, fantasy and science fiction were in these small press books. And there were, at the time of the of World War II and the years immediately following, there was a 
there was a proliferation of these small presses, Fantasy Press, Shasta House, Gnome, Prime Press, and Arkham House, of course. I remember it was just toward the end of World War II, I believe, that Don Wolheim brought out the Viking Portable, five novels of science fiction that had that had as well as H.G. Wells and uh, one or two others. I it, know Stapleton was It in had that. Stapleton in it, and it had Lovecraft, the, yes. the Shadow Out of Time, and one of the John Tain novels. And then I would say after about two or three years of these small presses, why then, they, then the major publishers became interested, and one by one they began to go into the field in the, around 1950, the late 40s and the early 50s. And then that also saw the decline of the small presses, so that just a very few of them, like Arkham House, managed to survive for a long time. Now, how did Witches 3 come about? Well, that was first published Witches 3. This is typical of the, of the period. Conjure Wife was going to be published by Arkham House, and uh, I had signed a contract, and so on. I had also signed a contract for Arkham House to publish Gather Darkness, and then came this decline in 1950, and a decline in the uh, in the status of the small presses, and Arkham House cut back a great deal, and uh, August Derleth, of course, who was, was Arkham House, he arranged for Pellegrini and Cudahy to bring out Gather Darkness. He re not only relinquished it to Pellegrini and Cudahy, it was all done at his suggestion, because they were publishing anthologies of science fiction and fantasy that he was putting together. As far as Conjure Wife went, well, he figured that Arkham Wood might eventually publish it, but he'd have to hold it up for some years because of this bust situation in science fiction at that time in the early 1950s. They just tried to start too many magazines and too many little presses, and so they, a bunch of them all failed. And the others often had to cut back production for two or three years. I remember it well. Yeah. I, I was the archetypal teenage science fiction fan back then with, yeah. uh, you know, all the pimples on my face and uh, my allowance in my jeans. And I would go down to the newsstand twice a week and, and look for all the new magazines, which mushroomed from seven or eight up to uh, 25 or 30, which left me with very mixed feelings. I loved seeing them all there, but I couldn't afford financially to keep up with them. <laughs> and, you know, multiply this one kid that was me by however many tens or hundreds of thousands there were, and I suppose that that's part of what brought it down. The sure. readers couldn't keep up. Yes, that's what happened. And as far as Witches 3 went, why... Twain publishers got this idea of an omnibus of science fiction, a sh short item by James Blish, and then a long novel by Fletcher Pratt, The Well of the Unicorn, and then Conjure Wife. 
and they published it first as an omnibus and then as a then in a single volume edition and now this summer ace is finally coming out with conjure wife they have the rights i'm happy to say and so it hopefully in for a, a you know a new era does that that book holds the record of your works for for bizarre editions from wacko publishers i it probably <laughs> does it came out once in a strange uh, two-in-one large format paperback as i recall yes. uh packaged as a sex novel that's right uh, i don't remember who it the was, publisher was but the publisher was universal publishing and distributing uh, company uh, they, they brought beauties. out a series of giants <laughs> i remember they tried to do the ace double thing but they weren't successful with it but i know they disguised my novel you're all alone no that was my novel you're all oh, alone wrong one. as a sex novel gave it another title the sinful ones oh that's that's <laughs> a sad business they wrote some sex scenes into it it was it was those semi-liberated sex scenes where they could just get a little sexy they'd seem dreadfully tame today and in any case they were very artificial but but you know i imagine a copy of that edition would would be worth a fair number of bucks today as a collector's item God help us. i bought it at the time on the newsstands and yeah. it even after I bought it, it kind of scared me off, and I never read it. I don't know what became of that copy, lost somewhere in the sands of times. But then Conjure Wife, getting back to the other one, was packaged as a gothic a couple of years ago. That's the award books edition, and that was, they always just lumped it with all their other gothic, you know, modern gothic novels. So at least... Ace is going to give it more of the treatment of, you know, the get it into the stream of the Exorcist and the Sentinel and <laughs> all those, all those of yes. It's a super protein book, then. Yes, it certainly is. Uh, I've been running you through all of these editors, Fritz, and, and I hope you don't mind this, but no. we've we've omitted your your dealings with the Ballantines and with Don Walheim. So whichever one you think would be more fruitful to tackle. Well, they, they both have been very helpful editors to me. I mean, Ballantine got me started, you might say, in the, in the science fiction field. I certainly, I expanded the Green Millennium. No, I expanded the Silver Eggheads for, uh, for book publication for them. And Ace was published my, in a sense, my first paperback novel, which was The Big Time. And that was when Don Walheim was the editor at Ace. But that happened. So they've, they've both helped me a great deal along the way. Is there, is there any um, peculiar background connected with The Wanderer? I've always been intrigued with that book, more than ordinarily so. Nothing very strange. Thank goodness it, uh, it finally seems to have a fairly secure place. At least Valentine has been bringing out new editions every few years, and it's apparently, uh, it's apparently kept on selling well. I wrote that 
I, I was about two and a half years working on that novel and getting together all the stuff about the tides and so on for it. Uh, I recall reading it again. I was a kid and this book came out and there's one scene in it where there's a, a bizarre astronomical sight. Mm -hmm. And one of the characters looks at it and remarks, I believe it was a woman, she looks up in the sky and she remarks to herself, thrilling wonder stories. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember writing that, but I remember reading it. I was on a train. It was one of those searing moments of recognition oh. that stays with you all the rest of your life. I don't know. Jane, Jim Blish bawled me out about those. He's, he had a theory that science fiction writers should not introduce references to science fiction in their stories. He had a point. I, I differed from him in some of the remarks I put into that book. I remember thinking at the time, well, hundreds of thousands of people read science fiction stories and have a background of reading science fiction stories in pulp sure. magazines. And if something weird did happen, they'd think of those stories for sure. It would be, you know, it would resemble when you when you see a strange planet in the sky, you if you you would think of the covers of pulp sure magazines. Would. It would be one way to try to assimilate it. You know, it's like this. Okay, one other question, and then I'll yes. quit. Well, a question in two parts. How many stories, all told, have you written? Do you recall? Do you have any notion of the number? I don't know. It's around two hundred, I'd say. Okay. Which one is your favorite? Oh, Conjure Wife. I, that's my favorite novel. Maybe for short stories, no great magic. You've been listening to a 1977 interview with the late Fritz Leiber, who died in 1992 at the age of 81, recorded in the KPFA studios and hosted by the late Richard A. Lupoff. The inserts were recorded in 1977 at Fritz Leiber's apartment in San Francisco. Again, this podcast was digitized, remastered, and edited by Richard Walensky, that's me, in August 2023. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.